Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. I'm RJ Lozada, and this is Making Contact. Hello? Yeah? Yeah, I can hear you. I know we just met, but that's my mom, Tess Lozada. She crossed an ocean from the Philippines to the U.S. with my dad. I was born here soon after, so that makes me Filipino-American. I kind of know my native tongue, Tagalog. I informally learned it with my younger sister from our parents. Growing up, Filipino parties were a thing. Actually, they're still a thing. Lumpia, karaoke, chismis, or gossip. And at that time, often new friends would ask my mom about us in our presence in Tagalog. He would always introduce us, and whomever or whoever was talking would ask you if Rochelle and I knew Tagalog. Yes. Do you remember what you would say often? (laughs) Yes. What did you say? Uh, They can understand. But they speak like a broken Tagalog. What I'm remembering is you would say, my daughter, they both understand, but my daughter... Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, go. (laughs) Rochelle can speak better Tagalog. They both understand. You guys both understand Tagalog. You can understand what we're talking about, but Rochelle can speak Tagalog. And the whole time you would say that to other people, I thought you were joking. <laughs> but you were serious. I was serious. Because I always hear a shell, you know, try to speak in Tagalog. And me, no. Mm, hardly. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe you're scared to speak Tagalog? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I still am. Yep, afraid. And it's more than embarrassment at mispronunciations or the slow act of scrolling through a mental translation book that's missing about a thousand pages. It also has to do with reconciling identities over oceans, over language. Of course, despite my fear, I've come to an understanding of myself, even with my broken Tagalog. On today's Making Contact, we'll continue this journey of identities over borders, over time, and we start with producer Ingrid Rojas Contreras, a Making Contact community storytelling fellow who has her own story to share. No, it's not that one. I was born between two worlds. One was populated by the traditions my mother was brought up in. The other was the modern world. Um, wait, this is Jeffrey's. Here, let's sit down. Yep, this is mine. My grandfather was a curandero in Colombia, a medicine man who it was said had the power to move clouds. My mother used to be a psychic who supposedly could see the future and appear in two places at once. My sister and I were born in Bogota, and even there, we kept our family history hidden. Oh my God, this looked just like you. I was like, why are you having great passports? Hold on. <laughs> oh yeah. But it's me. But it looked just like you. My sister Frances crossed into the U.S. in 2000. I arrived two years later. We're similar in every way, except one. How, like, how Colombian do you feel? Zero percent. 
And why is that? <laughs> um, I guess I never felt Colombian. My sister had a baby this past summer, Sarah. <coughs> Funnily enough, she was born on June 28th, which my mother thinks is a sign. Mi nieta nació el día que estaba de aniversario mi papá. My granddaughter was born on the anniversary of the death of my father. Very similar events happened then, as when he died and was buried. There was a wild, raucous rainstorm with lightning. The rain was such that in the clinic, the kitchen flooded. They even had to call the firemen. The rain was so sudden, heavy and very strange. The rain is important to my mother because when they were putting my grandfather's casket underground, it began to rain just over his plot. Did you know that's my grandfather's the day that he died? He didn't die on June 28th. Yeah, he, he didn't. He died on June 24th. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the 28th. I'm pretty sure it's the 24th. It was not the 28th. Okay, and if it is the same day, then I guess I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, I mean, I, if it is the same day, we'll have to check. If it is the same day, it feels like, um, like some kind of like full circle thing. Okay, but anyway, you don't think that you're making a face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always making a face. We're not just arguing about a date here. In a way, what we're wrestling for is the continuation of our story, culture, and traditions. Here's my fear. My mom doesn't speak English. My sister doesn't tell the stories. My dad doesn't talk about it. I'm afraid that if I don't honor this type of storytelling and worldview, it will all end with me. I think my mom and I are just in love with the culture. You know, no kidding. Like we love it so much. Yeah, it's weird. Like I know that you were too young to remember, but it like the whole thing was extremely violent. They tried to kidnap us. They kidnapped my dad. You know, um, they they would follow around my mom when she was driving. Uh, the maid had a gun in our house. You know, so I think I'm like a realist. I think you and my mom idolized South American culture a lot you know it's like every everything that you write about it's always like this, this this incredibly magical place and you know it's and you idolize it you put it way up there in a pedestal where whereas like i know it was really crappy you know um i don't think there was anything uh, romantic about it here is one way that a culture disappears violence I was too young to realize the danger we were in. So now, I'm the only one that travels back with my mother to Colombia, to the village where my family is from. Even though we have to drive through guerrilla territory to get there, my mother and I do this because we are attracted to the stories like moths to light. And I know others like us. Uh, my name is Florentina Mocano Shendo. 
Um, I am uh, born, raised, and educated in Romania. Florentina is an accomplished actor and scholar. She was completing her doctorate at Stanford University when we met. In Romania, her grandfather was a shaman. And I am the generation that basically was not forced, but was kind of encouraged not to even think about these things because that way of life was not uh, sustainable anymore. Here's the story. When Florentina's grandfather was a baby, he fell ill. The whole village thought he would die. Death would come to the door and take him. The answer? If they gave the baby a new identity, a new name, and at least temporarily, a new set of parents, death would be so confused it would go away. So the biological parents are in the house, passing him through the window to his new parents who are outside of the house, and, and not through the door because death supposedly is not that smart, so death would go through the door. <laughs> Florentina's grandfather was renamed Wolf and returned to his original family through the front door, but as a new person. And that, that was part of the, the ritual, that he was, he was in a way not only um, able to cheat death because he was just given to a different family, different parents, but also by changing his name to that of a, of a beast. And the reality is that uh, probably he had um, polio, and they didn't have vaccine and they didn't understand what that was at the time. Like me, Florentina crossed the border with an ancestry that has no context in the U.S. Both of us are interested in the ways these cultures can survive. I just um, learned maybe to, to recognize that um, there's this kind of rural, archaic society that tells time stories and sees life, sees disease, sees ease um, with different eyes. She's using the language of academia to explore her grandfather's story. I found ways, as I said, just to, to write a paper about it, to kind of you know, invite it back in into this kind of, um, how should we say, more uh, elevated discourse about, about existence, more scientific, you know. Florentina and I are both first-generation immigrants. So we get to make these decisions about our heritage, ourselves. But second-generation immigrants are born into a world where sometimes these decisions are already made for you. My name is William Guillermo Ortiz. I'm 67 years old and born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Guillermo is now a curandero. But as a kid, he was so cut off from his Mexican roots, traditional healers were not even on his radar. In the case of my dad, he wanted us to acculturate, and he didn't want us to stand out. He was discriminated on. I mean, he was discriminated when he was in the military. Growing up um, in San Pedro, I, I, I heard that he also had some, some situations where, where he, was, he was beat up. <clears throat> just for being Mexican. But every time Guillermo stepped on Mexican soil, he felt something distinct and incommunicable. When I'm in Mexico, something happens for me in terms of my interior. It, it, it's, it's almost as if something ancient and something old really, really starts to settle. 
and, and, and actually starts to come through. The language seems much clearer to me. I understand things more clearly. Guillermo is fascinating to me because he's American-born and was well on his way to achieving that very American of American dreams. He was about to become a doctor. But then he met a curandera who showed him the ways of traditional healing. I started to see that this, this was an amazing um, system of, of medicine, approach to medicine, because it was holistic. And when I, when I did start going to Mexico and, and reading about the cultura, I was just was like, wow, I'm from an incredible culture. I mean, so, I mean, especially reading about the Aztecs and, and the conquest and, and you know, just, just, just seeing how I was sort of the product of, of, of this clash of cultures with the, with the Spanish and, and the Mexica, to me it was just, how do we bring curanderismo into the 21st century? You know? And in order to do that, you have to, you, it's almost like bridging two worlds, having your foot very solidly in two worlds. Most immigrants, regardless of whether they're carrying on ancient traditions, have this feeling of being torn between two worlds. The question for all of us becomes, do we let go of one foothold or do we keep straddling the line? My partner Jeremiah is not Colombian. He's from the Midwest. His world doesn't have so many legends to preserve, but he wonders. What if we took your entire family in 1985 and dropped them in Ohio? Would the clouds be moved in Ohio? Would your mom appear in two places at once? You know, would all those things continue? Would, uh, would Raphael be the same healer he was if he was in the suburbs of Illinois? My feeling is that the traditions would not survive. But then I think of Guillermo, who grew up in California. And I wonder if maybe they could be reborn. It's like when you dip your hand in the water. The water can be from Japan, from the North Pole, from the South Pole. The water would move. It's a physical law, no? I think yes, the clouds would move. I have been listening to my mother. We try to keep the traditions and the prayers which were passed to her by my grandfather, taught to him by his father, taught to him by his father. They're left over from native tribes, whose history was mostly wiped out and whose traditions were redressed in Catholic culture, so they don't have a name. But we keep carrying them on. We want to pass some things on to my niece. All right, yeah. Shh. All right, vamos. I'm just thinking of Sarah, like, if she has, like, the two of us to, um, like, do that for her, like, show her what the culture is. Does that worry you, that we're so into it? Like, what if we influence her, is what I'm saying. It doesn't worry me, because it's just another part of, uh, you know, of who you are as a person. La pequeña. 
La pequeña de la casa, la pequeña, la pequeña. Like any disappeared culture, those of us who remain are left with what feels like random pieces of a broken plate. Maybe the specifics of the worldview my grandfather knew exist now only as whispers, but I will continue to put my ear to the ground for them. I will keep straddling the line. For the Making Contact Community Storytelling Fellowship, I am Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Abrirlos porque le parece muy bonito jugar, jugar y jugar. Y se le olvida que necesita descansar, necesita descansar. You're listening to Making Contact. That was Ingrid Rojas Contreras, a Making Contact Community Storytelling Fellow. Next, we hear from Kate Lindsay from the Stanford Storytelling Project, who traveled from the lecture halls of the university to a small village in Papua New Guinea to learn a word or two about love. These young girls are welcoming you to Limo, a small fishing village in southern Papua New Guinea. A crowd has gathered around, waiting for us to introduce ourselves. Good morning. My name is Kate. I am a graduate student in linguistics at Stanford University. We'll be working with Warama and the language committee to work on Ende language. We'll be creating a dictionary, and collecting notes for the first Ende Grammar. I really want to thank Warama and Wagiba for inviting us here and sharing their home. It's beautiful. Thank you. Papua New Guinea is a developing country located just north of Australia. In the south of Papua New Guinea is Western Province. It's the most resource poor and isolated province in the country. You won't find any infrastructure. There are no cities, no paved roads, no markets, no money, no hospitals, no water or plumbing systems, and no electricity. It's practically the last touched place in the world. And right in the center of Western Province is Limol. Limol Village is one of two villages that speak the Ende language. 300 people live here. I'm the first visitor in 20 years and the first white person that most villagers have seen. I came by invitation from Warama Krupa, one of the leaders in the village. He asked for a linguist to come help write down stories and to start the first Ende dictionary. Part of my job as a linguist is to collect words for the dictionary. For example, if we want to get the words for beak, feather, tail, all the body parts of a bird, all we have to do is look at a bird and start naming things. Both. So this are the tail feathers here. Yes. And this is the undertail right here. And the 
But this type of translation gets much harder when you're talking about a word that you can't point to. One word that I had a hard time translating was the word love. The word love. Mokwang. Mokwang is giving somebody a sweet potato or a bucket of water. Mokwang is when you help other people survive. The word love means to love my family members in such a way that when they're in need, I give them food, yam or cassava or anything, sago, meat like that. That's what love means, to share with people. Love means to share a yam. Because if you give me a yam or a sweet potato, that means I will survive another day. Love can't be about things, can it? Since I was little, my mom always told us kids, it's just stuff. When a car broke down or something special got lost or ruined, my mom always said, it's just stuff. Things don't matter. What's important is that we love each other and that we're all together. Before I left for Limo, an anthropologist told me that it was too bad that I was a woman. He said that it would be more difficult for me to find out what the men in Papua New Guinea thought and did, as if the men there were the only ones thinking or doing things. In fact, the women of Limo were the perfect people to help me figure out what love, what Mokwang, means in Ende. And it's not because love is some girly, feminine, or emotional thing. Mokwang means survival, and the village survives on the backs of the women. Women spend most of their days, most of their lives, gathering food for their children. Grandmother Pingham's mother was an especially impressive provider. My mother was a very hardworking lady. My mother goes hunting, she kills kaswari. She kills pig, deer, and she brings them to the house. She moves them and she feeds me with the meat and she grew me up. I look exactly like my mother, how she talks and do everything. It's exactly like me. Next, you'll hear from Jenny. One day, she had taken all of her family's clothing down to the river to wash. She didn't own a laundry dish, so she had left them to soak in a shallow area. She came back an hour later and found that the river had swept all of her clothes away. My clothes, the water took them. Clothes are very hard to come by in Limol. One day, though, her father-in-law came back from a long voyage to the city, and he brought with him a laundry dish. So when this old man bought me this laundry dish, I was very happy. So when I cook food, I always put this plate to him. When I find something good, I give him a share, and I love him. <laughs> Yes, 
kare pala sne Loni tells us about her mother and how she would babysit for her while she went fishing. While going fishing, I used to tell mother, oh, you helped me to look after the baby. I'll fish. And she used to follow me. She used to look after that small boy at the canoe place. I used to go and fish, throw fishing line, get fish, come back. I used to share with her, give some fish to her and ours too. For Robai, loving your children isn't an emotion. It's a promise to help them survive and be successful. When I think of the word love, I love my children and anybody that comes my way. But this love doesn't really work out because in some ways I don't support my children. I feed my children with food, with fish, with anything. But to support them in school, and in their clothing, I can't manage that. Because how can I, where can I get money to support my children? After their children, the women talked a lot about their husbands. None of the women talked about love as a feeling that grew after years of knowing one another. Instead, it was always a sudden decision about banding together for survival. What, what did you talk about when you first met? Oh. <laughs> yeah, he told me I'll yeah I'll get married to you. That's the first thing he said. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, when we first met, I told him I love you. I want you to be my husband because you are a very hardworking and good hunter, good uh, killer, and you are a strong man. My life will match with you and I will live with you. And he also expressed me the same words. <laughs> the first time I saw him, I told him that I love you and himself too, he said I love you. So that's how we got married, we loved each other. And how do you show each other that you love each other? We loved each other in many ways. The way I look after him, he takes care of me, and him, me too, I take care of him. So that's how we love each other. What I want, the, what I want, if I want something else from him, if I want him to bring something for me, and I ask him, he also he brings it for me. So that's how he loves me. And me too, if he tells me, bring this for me or cook for me, I could do that, do those work for him, and that shows that I love him. In fact, it's practically a law in Limo that you must love everyone, even strangers. When we are coming back from the camping place, the first person we meet on the road, we must not hide anything from them. We share what, what we have had in our bags, like if we kill the cassowary or pig meat or deer, in our camp and we are coming back home. If we meet anybody on the road, the first person we meet, we must stop and then share what little we have in the bag. Typically, American conversations about love center on romance and desire. We talk about love as an emotional, transcendent experience. I had always considered materialism and gifts to be symbolic of a rather shallow kind of love. But my experience in Limal showed me 
that Mekong is not shallow. It's actually a very deep and profound expression. When I think about the most profound expression of love, I think about running into a burning building, donating a kidney, protesting for human rights. In Limo, though, the dangers are different. Love is a bucket of water for someone too weak to fetch it. Love is a basket of yams for someone who feeds her seven children before she feeds herself. Love is a laundry basket for someone who's lost all of her clothes. Some of us are lucky enough to be able to express this kind of sacrificial love once in a lifetime. The end day women get to love like this every single day. That was producer Kate Lindsay, who gave us that piece through the Stanford Storytelling Project. Special thanks to Kate for bringing us all the way out to Papua New Guinea. Good luck on your future journeys back to Limo. And that's it. Making Contact is produced by Marie Che, Jasmine Lopez, and Monica Lopez. Our executive director is Lisa Rudman, and our web editor is Quan Booth. Like us on Facebook under Making Contact, and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm RJ Lozada. And thank you for listening to Making Contact.